Hey, welcome back. This is Dan Blewett, and this is Dear Baseball Gods, episode 36. So it's been about a month. I have not recorded a, an episode since the end of January. And uh, the reason has been, I guess, that I just uh, didn't feel like it. So as much as I have been fascinated by the the medium that is podcasting, it's been one that's been challenging. It's been very different than writing, where which is you know my forte. It's something I've been always naturally pretty good at. I I do have to work in my writing now more than ever, but podcasting is it's very live. Even though you can edit it, you know you can't stumble through your sentences. You try not to say um fifteen thousand times in an episode, and and um you know um it's just one of those things. It's just it's challenging. There's a lot of different levels, and I've enjoyed that. But it's also challenging to come up with things you feel like are relevant, things you think are good topics to cover and things that are you think are going to connect with people. So with uh, just different things going on, I've decided that I'm going to be as regular as I want to be. I'm not becoming famous. I'm not becoming a, a multimillionaire from my podcasting. Um, it's really just been a platform for me to sort of share some of the stories that uh, are in my book that's upcoming that I'm in my third draft of. Um, it's also just a way for me to connect with people in just a different, again, just a different medium because some people really like audio. Um, I personally don't actually listen to podcasts, which seems really hypocritical, but they're super boring to me. Uh, but what I do, I do listen to is, uh, is actually audiobooks. So I got rid of my TV and I got rid of, I mean, um, I broke up with my girlfriend and she took the TV and I decided I'm not going to replace it because I've actually never lived alone with a TV. The only time I've had a TV, I never really owned one myself. The only time I've had a TV was when I had a roommate who would provide the TV. So, you know, I realize that's how normal people live and all that. But I've actually, I'm fully aware that when I have a TV, I will watch it, even though I get almost no pleasure out of watching it. Television, especially commercials, I mean, even as a cord cutter, there's still just some stuff you have to sit through. End up wasting time looking for something I want to watch, and in general, that's just because I don't want to watch TV very often. So, I had a TV, I could have replaced it, chose not to. I think that's going to stick. And uh, whether or not I end up being productive between the hours of eight thirty and eleven p.m. when I'm home, which is you know my five to eight or five to nine when people you know relax after their nine to five job, you know my free time after work. Uh, I try to get something done. I try to do something productive. That's really my only hobby. But at the same time, um, a lot of times I don't. And so what I have been, my outlet has been uh, audiobooks. So in the last year, I don't know how I've gone, how many I've gone through, but it's obviously not a contest. Um, but I've gone through a lot of books. I, I read nonfiction. I listen to nonfiction. And it helps fill gaps because I can't listen to music anymore, really, for the last six years with Warbird Academy. I'm on my laptop listening to music throughout the day. I'm at Warbird Academy listening to music throughout the evening. So 12 hours of music, you kind of end up running through everything and much of it kind of loses its its meaning and its impact. So for the last solid year, I haven't really listened to music going to and from places in my car. I don't really listen to music that much during the day unless I need to write. I need to concentrate, in which case I'll kind of put something on the background. But I've enjoyed going through audiobooks because I learned something and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in the last year, 
I've, well, in the last four months, I've gone through Talk Like Ted, The Lost Art of Listening, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is incredibly boring, uh, The Cubs Way, Outliers, Predictably Irrational, Never Split the Difference, Heads Up Baseball, The Filter Bubble, which was awful, um, Captain Class, Power of Moments, Storyteller's Secret, Dollars and Cents, uh, Extreme Ownership was a recent one, Made to Stick, Start with Why, Switch, How to Change Things for the Better. Uh, right now on my, my docket, I've got Legacy, which I'm halfway through, Born a Crime by Trevor, Trevor Noah, which I'm five hours into, started that yesterday, uh, and then Big Data Baseball and Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I've had a lot of interesting things flowing through my brain. And the one that I really wanted to kind of touch on today, because I decided that one way that I can get podcasts out more consistency without pulling teeth, and again, I like doing it. I just don't like doing things that feel half-assed. I try to whole-ass things whenever I can, is uh, just making it easier. When you're trying to come up with 45 to an hour of content, you just think, oh my God, I got to plan this all out. It's going to got to be so many, it's got to be multifaceted. It's got to be a lot of different stuff involved. And uh, it just, it ends up feeling hard and you put it off and you put it off and then a week goes by and then a month goes by and then here you are. So many of the books, number one uh, was, which one here? I think it was Switch. They talk about this concept of the elephant and the rider. And it's a really, it's a really great analogy, I think, for how human beings work. And I actually broke it out in a discussion when I was at the ASMI meetings a month ago. And then, so basically, if you think of human being behavior, we're a man riding an elephant, and the elephant is our emotional side, and the man is our logical, analytical side. So the rider can survey out ahead and steer the elephant, hey, we're going to go here, and we're going to go here for the following reasons, but if the elephant gets scared, gets nervous, or has his heart set on something else, no amount of logic and reasoning and tugging at the reins is going to get that elephant to cooperate and go where the rider wants it. So no matter what we do, we have to appeal to both our emotional side, the elephant, which is really the bigger pull, and the rider as well. So they have to work together. So when we're trying to get people to do things, we have to appeal to the elephant more than anything. And that's where it comes back to, so if you've ever read the, the book Storyteller's Secret, which is by Carmine Gallo, and he's a he coaches CEOs and, you know, really important people about how to tell their story and how to pitch products and, and do all this stuff more effectively to reach people because he says at the heart of everything is a good story and people remember stories and, and that's what they take home in a long presentation. So when I, when I spoke at the ASMI uh, Injuries in Baseball course, I told a couple stories to try to connect the dots of how it was going through Tommy John surgery. I didn't want to just tell them here are 15 pieces of data that you can put in your pocket about what Tommy John is like. So I tried to use a story to illustrate, and I told, told a couple of small ones in my my 20 minute talk. But so as I, I I go through these, my goal has always been to tell stories and to try to get people to understand what it's like as an athlete or as a coach or whatever it is, kind of in a new way using a story. So one of the books that I, I liked, I didn't think I was going to like it because. Sometimes these, uh, these ex-military books are so, I don't know what the word is. I, I, I listened to Extreme Ownership, by, which is by Leif Babin and Jocko Willink. 
It's called Extreme Ownership, How Navy Seals Lead and Win. So to me, it sounds like someone's going to just like ooze too much machismo and be corny and whatever. And uh, that's typically not the kind of stuff that I'm into. Um, but upon listening to it, I really enjoyed it. They did a great job, I thought, telling stories and tying in their points with these stories from, from the battlefield. And so I shared a half an hour block of this with my 14U baseball team. And what I shared with them was the chapter about excuses and how the whole concept of this book is based on excuses. So extreme ownership is really just what they say that if you're going to be a leader, you have to take ownership for everything that comes beneath you. Every action that happens under your guidance is your responsibility. And when things go wrong, the only way for your team to get better and for you to get better as a leader is if you take extreme, which they basically just mean complete and utter full ownership of the situation. So um, Leif Babin, in his chapter about it, he talks about how he was the commanding officer of a SEAL platoon that underwent a friendly fire incident. So they were in Ramadi, and uh, their SEAL team was thought to be a little cadre of bad guys, and they were getting fired upon by other U.S. Marines or soldiers. I can't remember which, um, which branch they were from, but his SEALs were calling for help because they were pinned down by some really heavy artillery. There was heavy, heavy machine gun fire. And the SEALs were calling for the big guns to help bail them out while the, the other U.S. forces were calling in for big guns to help take these guys out. They were both about to just destroy each other. And that's a huge, huge no-no in the military. You never want friendly fly, fire, what they call a blue one blue. So he talks about, as they, you know, this is a big deal after it happens, after it comes out of the wash that um, that happened. And upon the investigation... It all fell down onto this guy, Lave. So he was the commanding officer, and he said that what he did was, after reviewing all the facts and all the mistakes that were made, because there are mistakes made by lots of different people, um, he went in and he told everyone that the only person to blame was himself, because he was commanding officer, so that as commanding officer, everything that happened under his watch, he was responsible for, and that he took full and total and utter responsibility for that incident happening. It was his fault, and he was going to make sure it never happened again. And so it was a great lesson that I wanted my 13- and 14-year-olds to understand because the sports world is its wrought with excuses. And the higher level you get to, the more those go away, but they still don't go away. You'd be astonished how much ability covers that stuff up because as long as you perform well enough, you know, if you go out there, you're a starting pitcher and you have a 3.5 ERA, if you have a 3.5 ERA and you bitch and complain after each start when you get pulled, you know, how the umpire was screwing you, how the mound, you know, was lopsided and lumpy and there was a hole, how your shortstop should have made that play, how this should have happened, how you didn't feel your best and you didn't get to do this and you didn't get enough sleep and whatever, you still hear that stuff. And when they put up good enough numbers, people tolerate it. But as soon as that stuff, as your numbers start to dwindle, you don't pitch quite as well, you don't play quite as well, that stuff becomes very intolerable. And either whether you play well or you don't play well, no one wants to hear that. And everyone knows who makes excuses, who makes, who, who's the complainer, who's soft and who's tough, and all those different things. And what you start to learn is the playing field, 
especially in professional sports, is is pretty level for everyone. Obviously, you know, lots of people will tell you about politics and all this other stuff. And we had a great episode with Kevin Vance. It was episode three and ten. He was on twice, and he'll be back. But we talk about the concept of if you don't like it, play better. You know, guys talk about, oh man, the umpire squeezed me. Well, okay, you got a borderline strike that you thought was a strike called a ball. Well, maybe you just should have thrown another inch or two on the plate. You know, maybe you should have hit your spot a little bit better. You know, if you don't like him screwing you out of call, make your pitch less borderline. You know, um, if your shortstop should have made that play, well, maybe you could have thrown that slider in a little better location so the guy didn't hit it so freaking hard. You know, may, then maybe he doesn't get that bad hop, or then maybe that blooper doesn't fall in. You know, bloopers are pitches up in the zone. You know, bloopers, pitches down when they're not hit well, they don't become bloopers, they become ground balls, they become double plays, that kind of stuff. So no matter what way you spin baseball, there's so much random chance involved. There's so many bloopers, there's swinging bunts, there's fielders who will misplay a ball, there's fielders who will drop a ball, you know? I, uh, I, had, a, I had a situation where I was really pitching tough out of a jam and our third baseman just dropped a pop-up on the infield didn't even touch his glove and it went for a hit and it came around as the winning run and it went on my era and that was a big deal to me that was a big game i pitched the ninth and the tenth inning in a uh in a away game in a packed house and that run was on my shoulders and it was an illegitimate run but you know what it, it didn't make a difference once that guy got on base it was solely up to me how I responded to it and what I was going to do next. If I was just going to let him come around to score, which I did. And so at the end of the day, you go, well, if that guy wasn't on base, if my third baseman does his job, doesn't drop that pop-up, um, you know, we don't lose that game. But no matter what happens, he was on third base. That happened. That was a thing that just happened. And if I had pitched a little better, I could have prevented him from coming around to score, right? Sure. As it turned out, I pitched poorly enough where he did come around to score. You know, I gave up a, I don't know, he advanced a second somehow, and I didn't make quite a good enough pitch, and the guy blooped one into left center field, and that was the game winner, you know? And uh, it's stuff like that where you say, well, I could have, you know, he, he barely, he, he broke his bat on that game-winning blooper. Well, it's like, well, okay, um, why don't you punch him out then? You know, if, if he broke his bat, so you made a pretty good pitch, why didn't you make a great pitch? Why didn't you strike him out? Why didn't you locate that a little bit better so he didn't get anything on it? Um, or whatever, maybe pick the wrong pitch. So it doesn't matter how you spin these things in sports. There's always a spin where they can be an excuse, where it can be a reason that you got screwed, or it could be an excuse why, or you can just take ownership for it and say, look, these things are always going to happen. And we know that in baseball and everything else, luck evens out. You know, for every time your your second baseman misplays a ball, he's going to make a play that maybe he shouldn't have for you. You know, you're going to get out of that double play or you're going to get out of that inning with a, with a miracle double play. For every blooper that falls in, there's a line drive that gets smashed right into someone's glove. You know, those things happen, but we tend to highlight the bad stuff when it doesn't go our way and we minimize the times luck and other people work in our favor. Um, you know, there's a story that I, that I recount in my book from 2012 and I was pitching for Evansville in, uh, no, I'm sorry, this is 2010. I was pitching in for normal. This is my rookie season. And we were in O'Fallon, 
Missouri, which is the Gateway Grizzlies team. It's in it's a St. Louis suburb. And my brother had driven out from Tennessee, where he was living at the time. He was living in Chattanooga. And he drove out about eight or ten hours from Chattanooga all the way down to St. Louis to see me pitch. And I was starting, and I was really hitting my stride at that point. But the, in my previous outing, which was actually a couple of weeks prior because I went on the disabled list, in my previous outing, it was just really hot and humid. I don't know why it was so much like it was extraordinarily hot and humid. It was more than normal. I mean, it was this was I think in August weekend. It was either July or August, and I was you know I pitched seven or eight innings, and in the last inning, I remember the skin on my middle finger. My whole hands were kind of pruny because my my whole uniform was wet from sweat and from the humidity. But my fingers were getting really pruny in the last inning. And I start to feel like a little blistery on my middle finger. And then sure enough, with about one or two outs to go, my middle finger starts to tear. And I pitch through it and it gets a little worse and gets a little worse and gets a little worse. And finally, the whole middle finger pad on my middle finger tore off. Just like this huge flap, almost the size of a nickel. It just tore off. And I was left with like a, a bleeding, oozing, you know, that underlayer underneath the blister where the middle finger is where your fastball comes off. And then at that point in my career, I threw mostly fastballs. I was struggling to throw my other stuff uh, just because it was my first year back from Tommy John. I just couldn't find it for some reason. So I remember that I was out in the mound. I think it was, again, either the seventh or eighth inning. And I was in the hundred tens of my pitch count. So I was definitely, this was definitely my last one. I wasn't going back out. And I think I had one or two outs to go. And I had an oozing raw fingertip. And I decided, well, the only thing I can do here is I can come out of the game, which I don't want to do. Um, or I can just tackle this last batter and just throw through it and see if I can get out of this inning. So I did. And I just winged every ball as hard as I could, hoping that some random pattern of fastballs would give them to pop out or ground out or whatever. As it turned out, I got a strikeout and I got a pop up and I got out of the inning. And I came in, and I, I showed my teammates and my coach my middle finger, and they were sort of stunned that it was as gross as it was because I wish I had taken a photo. But, you know, all the, all the skin on my middle finger was gone. So, great, you know, I think we got the win, and I was a little bit of a folk hero for a minute pitching on that gross finger. But the problem is I went on the DL for the next couple weeks that had to heal it. I couldn't continue to pitch that way, even though I gutted through it for – a handful of them I had to I had to go on the stable list. So I did. And I wanted to pitch immediately. I didn't want something stupid like that, like my skin to hold me back from missing starts. I didn't want to miss starts. I wanted to pitch as many innings as I could. You know, with that point in my life I'd sat on the bench so much from elbow problems that I just never wanted to sit again. And so for about two weeks it, it was like healed over, it was okay, but the skin was clearly really thin and I was worried about it. I didn't I knew that if I broke it back open, I retore it, it was uh, it was going to set me back another three weeks or whatever. But, you know, it got to the point where I was playing catch, I threw a bullpen, it seemed fine, it seemed iffy, but it seemed fine. You know, like, okay, let's not be perfect, let's just go back out there and do it. So we were in, uh, you know, the coaches said, hey, are you good to go? I said, yeah. I said, all right, well, you're starting in, you know, in St. Louis. So I did. And my brother, again, driven the whole day to be there. And in the first inning, I uh, I just got destroyed. I just walked guys. I gave up hits. 
And I hadn't really been doing it. I've been pitching exceptionally well. I kind of hit my stride. I was throwing the low 90s consistently. And I'd been pretty overpowering in some of my recent starts. But this one was just abysmal from the get-go. And I didn't specifically know it at the time. But my pitching coach, Brooks, he did. He looked out and he saw that I was holding back. I wasn't my normal self. That I was kind of babying the ball. And I wasn't pitching with the normal conviction that I, that I had. And later on in my career, I, would, I realized that as a high spin rate pitcher, as a guy who really could spin the ball well and who had some deception on his fastball, who, who got by being sort of a power pitcher in a lower league, I had to get every last little bit of it. So I had to throw it as hard as I could. Otherwise, the spin rate wasn't there. The sort of like rising effect of my fastball went away if I eased off it. You know, that's, I think that's kind of the case with power pitchers and and high spin rate pitchers, if you don't get that last little bit, if you don't really finish your pitch and get that last FU in it, then the spin rate decreases. And now the things that made you successful before, you don't have anymore. You don't have those, those special qualities. So I go out there and I just, again, I just get destroyed. I go like two innings maybe. Um, I have this, the details of the story written down a lot better. So I went back through box scores and all that. But I only went a couple innings, gave up like seven runs awful outing, embarrassing, and really just a big shame that my brother came out to see me pitch so poorly. So I go to the showers early, you know, I'm in the locker room, I waited out there for the next five innings, I didn't go back out, I did my arm care and iced and um, just hung out. So when the game ends, everyone pours back in the dugout, or back into the clubhouse, and uh, we get beat pretty badly, and as soon as the coaching staff walked through, Brooks goes blue, and he sees my, I need to see you in my office. So I said, okay. Um, and I, I didn't know what he wanted from me. I figured he wanted to ask how my finger was. That was what I assumed because he and I had a good relationship. Um, I was one of his favorite players, I think, because kind of because of my demeanor. And I was a rookie who was kind of doing well and proving himself. And at that point, I was like number one or number two in the rotation. And I figured, okay, he just wants to kind of check on me and see what the deal is, whatever. So I go into his office and I said, hey, you know, what's, what's going on? Here I am. And he says, if you ever pitch like that again, you're out of here. And I was kind of stunned. You know, I was like, well, you know, I've been pitching really well. Like today was kind of an outlier. Um, I didn't say that, but that was what I was thinking in my head. And he said, what's up with your finger? I said, I don't know. It's it's like kind of okay. I think I just was a little a little tentative about it. I think I was a little nervous about it. And he says, next time, if you can't go out there and throw 92 miles an hour, then you need to tell me because I'll get someone else out there who can do it. But if you can't go out there and give me 100%, give me 92 miles per hour on every pitch, and understand that that was just his way of saying me giving it my all. I mean, the velocity, that was that was about how hard I threw on average, but the velocity wasn't the thing. He was saying, if you don't go out there with 100% intensity like you normally do, then you're not worth anything to this team, which was true. I couldn't pitch at 95%. I wasn't a, I wasn't a finesse pitcher. I wasn't a command pitcher. I was a, a pitcher who would go out there, rear back, challenge guys, and throw it as hard as I could to a spot but again, because I had some stuff I could miss and I could just afford to be extra aggressive. That was how I pitched. I went in on guys. I challenged guys. I went up the ladder. I used my fastball as a, as a weapon. 
And he said, if you can't go out there and throw 92 miles per hour, you need to tell me and you'll be out of here and I'll get someone who can do it. And I, again, I, I didn't feel like that was fair. I didn't feel like it was fair. I felt like I had a valid reason that I went out there and did what I did. Like I didn't pitch well. I understood that at that point. I understood that when I was getting shelled in the game. And I thought, again, I thought that meeting was going to be, how's your finger? Yeah, you, you know, you look like you held back a little bit. You know, you didn't have your best. It looked like you were uneasy about it. I understand, blah, blah, blah. You know, let's have it heal up and we'll have a good outing next time. No, it wasn't that. It was, I don't care how your finger feels. You told us you could do the job and you went out there and you did a really crappy job. You embarrassed yourself, you embarrassed our team, and we lost today because of you. That was the message. And it was an important message for me. I did, again, I didn't feel it was fair, but I understood. And then to, to this day, I understand. Because at a certain level, it becomes zero sum. Either you can do the job or you can't. And if you can do the job, then you do the job. And if you don't do the job, there's no excuses. You just didn't do the job. And when you don't do the job that you say you're going to do, you just own up to it. Like, there's no one else. It wasn't about my finger. It was about my finger, right? It was about my finger. That's why I didn't pitch well. No one gives a shit about that. No one cared about that. And it was a really important message for that, you know, setting the tone for the rest of that year. And I wasn't a guy who would come around with excuses, but all of us have done in our career. All of us have done in our life at different points. I'm no different, but when you get some people who will bark at you about it and get in your ear about it like that and say, no, even if you always give me a good effort and today was an outlier, it's still not okay. It's still not okay. And there's still no excuse for it. Even if you go through a thousand outings and you give me a 999 great ones on the one bad one, you still don't get to make an excuse. You still don't get to blame someone else. You still absolutely have to do the job that we ask you to do. And if you say you can do it, you better do it. And I, I thought I lived by that before, but I could tell again, I didn't say any of that stuff to him. I just said, yes, sir. Um, it'll be better next time. I said, absolutely. I was scared. And he and I were, like I said, he and I were close and that reminded me that he was not my friend. He is my friend. He was my friend, but he was my coach and I was a player. And as much as that relationship is it's great when it's positive there that's still what it was he was still my coach he would still get rid of me in a heartbeat if i couldn't do the job and he reminded me of that and it was important so this audiobook that i you know recently listened to you know about the navy seals it was a good reminder that no one cares why things don't go well when you put yourself in a position as a high performer and as someone who wants to be an even higher performer and you want the respect of your peers and you want to go places and play amongst players or, or, or work in a business with highly respected, highly motivated, high caliber people, you have to hold yourself to that same standard that no one cares. No one cares when you don't do the job that you say that you'll do. You know, and, and we learn that in other ways throughout the season. You know, you eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day because you don't make enough money to have a different pregame lunch. You know, you roll off the bus at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m. sometimes, depending on your overnight bus ride. And you stagger into the hotel. 
and you get horrible sleep and the sun is pouring in through your room, through your blinds, you know, at all hours while you're trying to sleep. And then you go to the field and you feel like crap and you're tired and you want to just to just be okay that you don't play very well because of it. But it's not. It's always not okay. It's never okay. And you have to find ways to cope with it and find the focus that you would have when you're rested or when you're healthy or whatever it is, even when you're not. Because the fans in the stands, they don't they don't see what goes on in the in the background. And they don't they wouldn't care either way if they did. They would understand. We all understand what it's like to be exhausted and to not be able to give our best effort. But we also expect a certain amount from people, and if they say they can do it, then they need to do it. You know, and I I learned the hard way, and I've told this story before on this podcast, that when I went off to make my comeback from from my second Tommy John surgery, you know, I, I showed up at spring training, hadn't and I hadn't really thrown in the last three weeks, and that was because at Warbird Academy we had to move from our old location, and we had to turn this crappy warehouse into our new location in just three and a half weeks. Actually, I think it was two and a half weeks. And life was just coming first at that point. So in my last two and a half weeks prior to leaving for the spring training, that was going to hopefully jumpstart the second half of my career after this long recovery from elbow surgery. I just had to spend all day, every day on my hands and knees, scraping the, the concrete floors ready for turf. You know, laying drywall, painting, building office furniture. You know, we built benches and tables and all this stuff and kind of reworked the cabinetry and replacing toilets and installing gym equipment, drilling holes in the floor, power washing, a 7,000 square foot warehouse, all this stuff. We had to do so much stuff, hanging nets, you know, hanging wires and cables and all this stuff that just took first that just came first because it was what life required that was our business that was my livelihood and lucas's and so i only threw a handful of times the shape that i was in prior to that that i'd been building up to to go off the season it was dwindling you know i was again i was doing other things that had to be done there was no there was no other way about it and so i threw a couple of bullpens on the turf on the or a turf mound right in the middle of the concrete floor Played catch a couple of times, and I, I barely had time to lift weights or to do arm care. I just was too tired from all the work we put in. And I was going to go out to spring training regardless, and I was going to go out about as unprepared as I had been in a long, long time. And I decided that I didn't care. Like, I knew I was as unprepared as I'd ever been. And I decided that despite that, I was still going to pitch well, and I was not going to perform at any amount lower than... I would have if I was completely and utterly and ready or unprepared to go out there, you know. And at that point, when you use a routine to help ensure good performance, you can sometimes it can sometimes be a crutch to you where you can't perform unless everything's perfect. You can't perform unless you get that great night's sleep, or you know everything feels perfect. Your arm feels perfect. Your your weekly routine, your running, your throwing, your strength training, all that stuff is perfect. If you don't get your twenty minute super long and annoying tubing and medicine ball and plyometric ball warm-up in the bullpen. If you don't do that, you can't pitch well. There's tons of guys who make their routine, their crutch, rather than making their routine something that just helps them be a little bit better a little more often. And I showed up at spring training, and I was the same guy that I always was, despite being out of shape and unprepared by my own standards. 
And it was because I wasn't going to let it be an excuse and I wasn't going to let it ruin the body of work that I'd put in. So the previous two years rehabbing from surgery, it was not going to just dwindle. I was not going to forget how to pitch. I was not going to forget how to throw a curveball. I was not going to forget how to locate a changeup. And I wasn't going to forget how to throw 92 miles per hour just because I, I missed some workouts in the last three weeks before I left. You know, I wasn't going to let that, that derail me. And that was the mindset I showed up with because no one there was going to say, oh, it's okay. Oh, I understand. You didn't get to throw because of your business. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. Well, you know, we'll hold an extra roster spot for you. Like, no, that wasn't how it was going to work. I was going to compete with guys who were ready, who were, had a much better baseball resume than me. That was just how it was going to be. There were not going to be any concessions made for me or the scenario that I was put in with my business prior to leaving. Like no one cared. Not one person cared. The scenario hadn't changed. I either had to pitch well enough to make that team or not. And I did. I pitched well enough to make that team. I got cut anyway. And that was okay. I lived with that. I did everything I intended to do. I went in there and I didn't make an excuse about it. And I just pitched. I pitched absolutely as well as I could have. I really couldn't have asked more for myself. And because of my mindset that I was going to do this regardless of being unprepared, it helped me muscle through the tough times and be more mentally, I think, mentally strong and driven than I ever had been. And sometimes it takes those wake-up calls as well to remind yourself that all those things that have helped make you great don't make you who you are. They don't make you they're not in control of your success. Your routine and your strength training, your preparation, those things help ensure your success, but they don't make you successful. They don't make you who you are, and they don't control you when it comes down to it. I mean, you see so many pitchers in the major leagues who, when times are tough, and Madison Bumgarner is probably the best example, he just forces himself to put that team on his back just through his own strength of will. You know, when the Giants are in the playoffs, you know that Bumgarner is going to kick into this extra gear that's purely mental that allows him to beat other people and that he refuses to lose. And that's a it's a hard learned quality. Some people are born with it. And I don't know his situation. Maybe he was born like that. Um, but my guess is that he's honed it over time. My best my guess is that he's had some some tough times that he had to fight back and learn that discipline and learn that sort of eye of the tiger kind of mentality. And uh, I'm sure he got roughed up as a kid, you know, playing youth baseball and playing amateur baseball. I'm sure he was one of the best players, but none of those things just happen on their own. They happen because people want them to happen and they refuse to settle for anything less. So one of the things that is going to be part of our team culture is a complete and utter lack of excuses. So when guys don't make the play, just make the play. Ball takes a bad hop, bad hops are going to happen. Umpire rings you up on a crappy call. We expect umpires to be bad. It's not a shock. Why didn't you hit one of the previous three pitches? You don't strike out on the first pitch. You strike out on the third, right? So what did you do with the first hittable pitch? Okay, you put yourself in a hole. You took them. Okay, you swung and missed through one. Okay, that sets you up in a position where now you can get rung up on a bad call. So you don't like it, hit, the, hit an earlier pitch next time and barrel it up. You know, the mound is different for everyone. It's a common complaint, even amongst pro guys. They complain, oh, does that mound look too flat to you? Is that mound too tall? 
It doesn't matter. It's the same amount of tallness or flatness for every pitcher that will use it that day. And some pitchers pitch well and others don't. So that's clearly not the variable at stake, even if it is a variable. Like we all feel the mound when it's different. Every pitcher does. And I think it was in college where guys were talking about that. And I decided that I didn't care about the mound anymore. I was tired of hearing about the mound. I had had the same comments for myself. Like, oh, this mound sucks. God, this mound's weird. I'm not comfortable. But then you realize that other guys pitch well on the same mound that you're complaining about. And suddenly you're like, why am I complaining when he's fine? Clearly it's fine. I just need to not pay attention to the mound anymore. You know, all that nitpicky little stuff doesn't make the difference between one pitcher and the next. It's just it's just a little thing that you have to deal with. But everyone has to deal with them the same. You know, I pitched on mounds where the sun sets directly behind the plate in some bump in some ballparks, and the sun's in your eyes for the first inning. But it's also in the other guy's eyes too. And it's just going to be there. It's going to be in your eyes. And if it's in your eyes, it's up to you to pitch as well as you possibly can with it in your eyes. It's just part of the game. And it's one of the kind of nice things about the game. Baseball is always variable. All these sports that are played outside are very variable. You know, I think they're more variable than most. You, uh, and you, I can't imagine playing volleyball or basketball inside a, a, a gym like that all the time. You know, it's nice to have some of the elements. It's nice to have to, it's, you learn things from pitching in the pouring rain. You learn things when you're trying not to slip because your mound's so muddy that you're pretty sure you're going to slide down the mound and pull your groin on the next pitch. Like Those things build character, and they, they help you, you know, develop some of that toughness. Because, look, if you're out there and it's raining, it sucks. Everyone, want, everyone just prays in the bullpen, please don't let me go in today. Please just let the other guys go in. Please let the score get lopsided so they don't call my name. You know, if you're like the eighth the eighth inning guy or the ninth inning guy, you know, you're not going to go in if it's a blowout. You're just like, please, just let it be a blowout so it's not my turn today. But sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Now, when it is, you're expected to pitch well, even though everyone knows that throwing in the rain sucks and the ball gets heavy and the ball gets wet. Everyone hates it. It's crappy on the umpire. It's crappy on the catcher, the pitcher, the infielders, the hitter, everyone. But we all have to deal with it, and it just happens. You know, there's injuries. One, I think one season we had four injuries on the mound, and they weren't all just like arm injuries, but just like random things. Guy pulls his groin covering first. Guy pulls his hamstring feeling a bun. And suddenly one of us relievers, we all stand up in panic, and we're all suddenly waving our arms around in our, in our jackets trying to get hot because we don't know which one of us is going to be called to run out there right then and warm up on the game mound in front of everyone. Everyone hates doing that. It's the absolute worst. You can't go through your normal routine. You have to hustle up, even though they say, oh, take as much time as you want. You really can't. They want the game to get going, like right as soon as you can possibly get it going. So you end up having to get warm in half the normal pitches that you do, and uh, and then you're expected to pitch well. No one says, oh, it's okay that you you know, you know blew three runs that inning because you know they called you out from the bullpen and you had to work on the game mound. Like, you're in there, you're expected to pitch exactly as well as you would in any other circumstance. And uh, and those things happen, you know. I got called for one of those, and other guys got called for the, the couple others that year. And everyone's down there crossing their fingers and praying that it's not them who has to run out there, but it was. It was four of us on those four different times. And it sucked, but we all had to do it. And it's just one of those experiences. So, 
that was uh that was kind of my my topic for today. You know, excuses are one of those things that we all do them and we all grow from them and none of us will ever be completely devoid of them. You know, we had a we had a 5-day fast this past week on my myself, my partner Lucas and um, another guy who's the parent of one of our Senators players, Todd. Um, I suggested it that we do this 5-day fast after I watched the documentary. And guess who the guy who the guy was to quit two days in? Me. I went to a concert in Indianapolis, and I didn't want to have a crappy day in the city. It was beautiful, and I had a concert, and uh, I wanted to have some energy and like enjoy my day there. That's an excuse. It just I mean, we can just all be honest with each other. I could have gritted out through that if I wanted to, but I didn't. So you know, I fell short. And instead of saying, "Look, guys, I'm soft. I'm weak," I said, "You know." I went to a concert and I wanted to have a good day. I should have picked a better week. So I was at home. I probably would have stuck it out, but here I am and I quit and you quit. That's all that really mattered. I didn't make it. I quit. I gave up. So I live with that. Do I really, do I really care? No. But again, it's just another microcosm because as I explained to both of them, when I quit, it was still an excuse, right? It was still an excuse. I could have stuck it out if I wanted to. I chose not to. So we're never completely out of the woods with it. That's just kind of life. But on the whole, when you lead by example and you're leading by taking responsibility for your actions, when you're either when you do well or when you fall short, people can respect that. They can respect that you're going to make things better the next time you go about it. And you're going to try to make the, the effort to improve next time. That it's not going to happen again when you fell short. Because I knew the next time I took the mound with my blistered middle finger, I had to pitch well. I had to pitch well, and whether it was healed or not, because I roughed it up a little bit that in that game in St. Louis. And next time, was it guaranteed to be healthy and guaranteed to have nice, thick, tough skin? No, it certainly wasn't. But I knew that the consequences were there. That next time out, whether my finger absolutely exploded or it stayed perfectly fine, I had to throw every pitch with the normal conviction that I did. Otherwise, I'd be gone. And so I did, and we got the ship right again, and I pitched fine for the rest of the season. So, um, you know, excuses are just one of those things that when we can put the blame on ourselves and be okay with it, we can then move forward and say, okay, I screwed this up. Even if subordinates below me, even if there were other factors involved, I screwed this up. I could have done better. So next time this happens, what will I do better? That's how you grow as a person. And that's how you get where you want to go. If you want to be a leader in a company, if you want to be a, a leader on the field, you want to make it to the major leagues, to the NFL or the NBA, whatever it is, if that's always your attitude when you fail, that I could have done better, what are the things I could have done better? Let's make let's take actionable steps to improve that next time. Then you're on the right track. All right. This was Dear Baseball Gods, episode 36. We're coming up on the the one-year anniversary of this podcast, as well as Twinsies, uh, my podcast with my partner, Lucas Cook. So be sure to leave me a review on iTunes. If you want to leave me a hateful review, say, hey, this guy once in a while takes a month off. Uh, You're more than welcome to. But if you enjoyed the show and you want to leave me a positive review, it always helps me reach more people. So jump on iTunes or Stitcher or Blueberry or wherever and uh, feel free. Okay. I don't do this for the reviews. I don't do this for any particular reason. 
except to be up on my soapbox, <laughs> share some stories from this from from my career, hopefully reach some younger players and people out there who can hopefully benefit from something I've lived through. And we'll see you next week.